The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. In 2024, nine countries have nuclear weapons. There's more competition between powerful nations, more concerns about smaller countries, nuclear modernization and expansion programs across the world, and also fears of radiological terrorism. These modern dangers are not lesser than those of the Cold War. In fact, many experts believe the risk of a nuclear catastrophe is as high as it has ever been. Hi, I'm Michael Kovnat. This is the Next Big Idea Daily, and it's Wednesday. What's the future of nuclear weapons? We've been living with these terrifying devices for nearly 80 years, and in some ways, they've just blended into the background of global conflict. But we should put the spotlight back on the bomb before it's too late, according to Sarah Scholes, author of Countdown, The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons. Sarah is a freelance journalist, contributing editor at Scientific American, and a senior contributor at Undark. She frequently covers topics about how science and technology impact society. Her work has also appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Wired, and Popular Science, among others. Here she is to share some of her big ideas. The nuclear threats of the 21st century are different from those of the earlier atomic age. Back then, tension was largely between two superpower countries, a relatively simple dynamic when you get right down to it. In 2024, meanwhile, nine countries have nuclear weapons. There's more competition between powerful nations, more concerns about smaller countries, nuclear modernization and expansion programs across the world, and also fears of radiological terrorism. The ongoing conflicts between Israel and Hamas and Russia and Ukraine directly involve two countries with nuclear weapons, with other atomically armed states taking sides. These modern dangers are not lesser than those of the Cold War. In fact, many experts believe the risk of a nuclear catastrophe is as high as it has ever been. That's part of why the U.S. nuclear complex is getting a makeover to the tune of more than a trillion dollars. That makeover will involve newly designed weapons, alterations and upgrades for old ones, and new production of plutonium pits, hollow spheres of radioactive metal at the heart of nuclear weapons. Some say those developments are necessary because the old weapons aren't as credible or reliable as they once were, and so might not deter conflict like they used to. Some. Meanwhile, say the modernization program is part of an arms race, a waste of money, and a global provocation. Whichever way you lean, one thing is clear. Even when nuclear weapons aren't an explicit part of a conflict or negotiation, their subtext and their coiled threat underlie every international interaction. No one knows whether nuclear deterrence actually works or will work indefinitely. The basic idea of nuclear deterrence is that if country A has nuclear weapons, country B won't attack with their nuclear weapons, or on a large scale, because they know country A could retaliate in a radioactive way. The details of the strategy get a little more complicated, 
but that's the gist. And the result, the story goes, is that Earth doesn't see the kinds of large-scale conflict it did in the past, because everyone knows that if a tiff gets out of hand, it could go nuclear, and no one wants that. When I started interviewing people who work at the nuclear weapons labs, they often cited a chart they had seen during their recruitment or early career years that shows the number of wartime casualties relative to the overall population over time. After the invention and deployment of the first nuclear weapons at the end of World War II, the line on that graph drops off precipitously. Although there's conflict all around, it doesn't rise to the same levels of violence as the past. Some within the nuclear complex attribute that to the pacifying, de-escalating effects of nuclear weapons. Others, though, call that into question. No one knows if nuclear weapons have caused, rather than correlated with, the drop-in deaths. Also consider this point from Dan Sinars, a physicist who directs an instrument called the Z-Machine, where scientists do high-energy research on how nuclear weapons behave. One war would be all it would take to change that equation, he points out. From the other side, you have Emma Claire Foley, who works for a nuclear abolition think tank called Global Zero. She says, The fact that the only solution we've come up with is to hold ourselves at the very real risk of destruction many, many times greater than what occurred in those wars, that's not a solution. That's simply preparation for a much bigger problem. There is, in other words, no guarantee that deterrence will keep us safe in the future. Nuclear secrecy breeds conspiracy and lack of public understanding. Even though I spent years asking people within the nuclear weapons world intrusive questions, there's plenty I didn't learn. And that's not just because I didn't try hard enough. It's because nuclear secrets are some of the most closely held in the U.S. government. As Alex Wellerstein, a historian who studied this topic for years, says, Nuclear secrecy is a special kind of secrecy, because the atomic bomb is a special kind of bomb. Nuclear weapons topics even have their own special clearance system. The highest level is not top secret, as it is in the intelligence and defense worlds, but Q, and the Atomic Energy Act made information about nuclear weapons born classified, secret from the moment of its creation, no bureaucracy required. Of course, there are very valid reasons to keep nuclear secrets. We do not want everyone to go around building bombs because we put designs on the internet, for instance. But excessive secrecy, here as elsewhere, leaves things to the imagination. When people don't know the full story, they're going to fill in the gaps themselves and also assume that the lack of transparency is at least partly due to the desire to cover up nefarious action. For instance, when Los Alamos was founded during the Manhattan Project, people speculated that it was a poison gas factory, a place for pregnant members of the Women's Army Corps to hide out, and a whiskey mill, among other things. Secrecy also limits public knowledge and debate. Right now, the United States is embarking on that project to build new plutonium pits, the nuclear weapons cores, in part because the old pits are getting, you know, old. But because so much about plutonium is classified, 
it's hard for the public to evaluate how necessary or useful or well-run the new plutonium program is. If the country is going to be investing so much in our nuclear weapons in the coming years, its residents should be able to readily access, to a reasonable extent, information about what that means and why. It's our future, too, after all. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, that's it for today. Come on back tomorrow when we'll have some insights from the new book, The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. It's a fascinating tale of the last slave ship to land on U.S. shores more than 50 years after the slave trade was abolished. I'm Michael Kavnet. See you tomorrow.